This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Daniel Oberhaus, author of Extraterrestrial Languages, published in 2020 by MIT Press. Thanks for talking with us today, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me, Malcolm. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in. Your book tells the history of human efforts to talk to aliens, but it does actually more than that. It reflects on the relationship between communication and cognition, the metaphysics of mathematics about whether dolphins have a language and, and a lot more. So why don't we start big picture with what you want your readers to get from your book? What is it that we can learn from our efforts to communicate with extraterrestrials? Sure. So I think the big picture here is that this task of interstellar communication, it's its something that I think uh, there's, there's often a bit of a giggle factor associated with it in terms of, you know, people think of trying to communicate with aliens. This is very far-fetched. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken with people who think of it as almost a pointless endeavor. And mm-hmm. I, 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 somewhat, I get that, but um, I, I think that misses a, a really fundamental aspect of this, which is um, this idea of trying to communicate across uh, dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of light years uh, creates all sorts of really interesting philosophical um, and pragmatic problems that I think, you know, I personally, I, I do believe that there's life in the universe. So I think that mm-hmm. if we are ever going to make contact with them, this is something that we're going to have to address at some point. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you really start thinking about how do you go about communicating with something that you know nothing about, it just opens up this huge can of uh, uh, of worms really in terms of uh, the philosophy you have to deal with. And, you know, th- this is a field that's older than I think a lot of people recognize. It, mm-hmm. it goes back almost 200 years. And there is a distinct kind of philosophical lineage in terms of how people think about this that's heavily influenced by the um, both philosophical ideas of the time, as well as the uh, technological uh, capacity of the people who are thinking about it. So, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a blend of the the high tech and the, the kind of heady philosophical mm-hmm. questions. So I think there's mm-hmm. something in there for everybody. Yeah. And we'll get in get into both the technical stuff and the philosophical stuff as as we go through. But let's take a step back and um, learn a little bit about you. How did you get interested in these topics? You know, so what's what's your own background? How did it prepare you for writing writing this book? Sure. So I am um, I, I have a my degree is in philosophy, and I came to uh, communication with extraterrestrials um, kind of in a roundabout fashion. I mean, I've always been interested in the the question of whether or not life exists in the universe. I think like most people, if you've ever looked up at a starry night, you can't kind of help but drift in that direction. But I, I got more uh, seriously interested in it after learning about a mathematician named Hans Freudenthal. Uh, he's a Dutch mathematician operating in the in the mid-century. Uh, and he, he has just a, a fascinating life story. He uh, uh, was detained by the Nazis. It was put in a concentration camp, escaped, mm. hit out in Amsterdam for a while. And like, while he was there, uh, he continued to really push the boundaries on these very obscure, uh, <laughs> algebraic topics that are, are actually quite boring if you're not a mathematician, <laughs> but he was also, uh, very interested in communicating 
with extraterrestrials and like how you might go about that. So he ended up actually creating the first dedicated interstellar language. And so I just thought this guy was fascinating. Um, I wrote an article for the Atlantic about it Mm -hmm. and uh, one thing led to another. And I realized that this was a topic that had, um, you know, never really been covered in depth. There's a lot of books about SETI out there, but very Mm -hmm. few that address these issues of interstellar communication specifically and really dive into, you know, uh, the fundamental background and kind of the, the ideas that you have to grapple with as soon as you start talking about interstellar communication. So, hmm. um, yeah, there was a lot to be said and uh, a couple of years later turned into a book. That's great. So, uh, you used one acronym there and there's a, a quite a few acronyms that come up in the course of the, the book. What is, what is SETI stand for? It's for listeners. Sure. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that is different from SETI with a C, which -hmm. is communication with extraterrestrial intelligence, which is different than METI, which is messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. So these are, (laughs) I guess you could say that these all kind of fall under the umbrella of SETI, but technically speaking, SETI with an S, technically speaking, SETI is just putting out a dish and listening for signals, whereas Mm -hmm. METI is the actual act of creating messages and broadcasting them back into space with the hopes of making contact. I see. Okay. So we'll, um, we'll try and keep those, keep those distinct (laughs) as we, as we go through. Uh, And I think one, one thing that's been in the news uh, recently that has to do, I guess, with both SETI and, and METI is um, the recent collapse of the Arecibo, um, the, the dish, uh, which is very, very sad uh, situation. But you talk about uh, messages that were sent out from, from that location and you, in fact, include um, one of the messages in uh, the message in, in an appendix of your your book. So um, maybe can you tell us a little bit about what happened at that radio telescope in 1974? Um, there's some controversy about it. What what was it that was sent? Why was it controversial? Sure. So in 1974, there was the first message that we've ever broadcast into space intentionally. And mm-hmm. I think it's worth uh, distinguishing that because um Prior to that event, you know, we, we create so much radioactivity on Earth that there's actually a, a mm-hmm. sphere about 100 miles or 100 light years wide in any direction from the Earth that is just like this radio sphere that's emanating mm-hmm. outward into mm-hmm. space. And that comprises all of the, the radio technologies that we've used for, say, missile defense or television broadcasting. And it's just, it's just noise. It's just right. a radio sphere of noise. But 1974 was the first time that we intentionally designed a message and broadcast it to a star system um, nominally with the intention of making contact. And I say nominally because mm-hmm. um, the star system that they targeted is 25,000 light years away. Um, mm-hmm. There's no evidence that anything exists there. And um, the message that was broadcast is a very, very small chance of actually being deciphered yeah. correctly, which I go into a bit in the book. But the, uh-huh. the long and short of it is, is that um, people on Earth couldn't even int- uh, <laughs> in- interpret this message that was designed by this planetary astronomer named uh, Frank Drake in, in collaboration with uh, Carl Sagan. And so they sat down, they tried to design a message and nobody could figure out what it was. Mm. It, took, it took like a decade and then some amateur code breaker eventually got it kind of right. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so that was broadcast from Arecibo telescope, which until very recently um, was the largest and most powerful radio telescope in the world that was now surpassed by China. And then yeah. of course it collapsed this year. So yeah, um, really sad piece of history there lost, but integral to our efforts to communicate with aliens. Yeah, so you you mentioned that this was the first so the first message that we sent out intentionally. 
But much earlier, you mentioned this um, this mathematician that was working on uh, in sort of interstellar language. Uh, first of all, why did it take until 1974 to to send out uh, a, a message? Why can't we just sort of beam beam messages out easily? Why why does it require such a big, you know, radio dish and what's in, what's involved basically in, in doing that? Yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot of factors there. Um, the first was that until the turn of the 20th century, we didn't even have radio, um, so it was kind of out of the, the question. And um, that's not to say that there weren't efforts and ideas floating around about how to communicate with aliens. Um, uh, you know, for for listeners who might not know this, uh, up until about uh, 1910 or so, it was still kind of an open question as to whether there was life on Mars or other planets mm-hmm. in the solar system. In fact. Um, around the turn of the 20th century, a lot of people really did think that there was life on Mars and that they had seen evidence of canals and um, all the rest. And so most of the efforts prior to the 20th century were involved with interplanetary communication with the people who were supposed to live on Venus or Mars. And so you would use things like lights and mirrors uh, Mm -hmm. to create almost like a Morse code type system. Um, Those didn't really come to fruition, but some of the greatest mathematicians of the the, uh, 18th and 19th centuries were thinking about these issues. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's not a surprise that people who are interested in uh, mathematics kind of gravitate toward um, this question of interstellar communication or communication with extraterrestrials. Um, mm-hmm. But to, to answer your question about why did it take until 1974, there's a couple of reasons. The first is that until about the 1940s or 50s, the the radio dishes that you would need to broadcast on an interstellar uh uh, distances simply didn't exist. They weren't powerful enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but with World War II and the Cold War driving innovation in radar, um, th- we we very quickly developed radio dishes that uh, were more than capable of broadcasting to stars hundreds or, or thousands of light years away. Mm-hmm. And so Arecibo is one of those telescopes. Um, the, the, the challenge with broadcasting is actually, I think, kind of a, a, a very pragmatic one, which is that these telescopes, uh, especially a telescope as sophisticated as Arecibo was at the time, mm-hmm. it's really in demand among planetary astronomers. It's really hard mm-hmm. to get time on that. And so mm-hmm. if, you, if you approach the grant ma- making agencies and say, hey, I want to beam a message to aliens, you're going to get mm-hmm. locked out of the room. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's fortunate that Carl Sagan and Frank Drake were such eminent scientists in their own right that they could um, kind of give some legitimacy to SETI um, because I mean, Frank Drake, he was the guy who started it all 15 years before they broadcast the message. He was using mm-hmm. telescopes to listen, but even then it was incredibly hard to convince people that this was a worthwhile and scientific endeavor. Mm-hmm. And what, what was the, re- the reception to the, to the message when it was sent out? Well, I mean, was, was it a positive reception? What did people think? Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of people thought it was, uh, you know, the, the intention was it for it to be something beautiful for us to kind of think about, um, how we would go about communicating on a, a global scale. Um, not everyone walked away with that message. There was uh, a, a leading astronomer at the uh, Royal Institution who wrote a very angry letter to Frank Drake in the aftermath of that and actually tried to uh, get him kicked off a bunch of committees because of mm. doing this. His name was uh, Sir Ryle, and he <laughs> was very convinced that uh, this broadcast was going to expose ourselves to potentially malevolent aliens, mm. mm-hmm. which could then, of course, uh, I don't know, lead to some sort of you know doomsday scenario where mm-hmm. we get contacted by an a intelligent and not very friendly alien species. And so he tried to put a, the, the kibosh on all broadcasts and you know that never came to fruition either thankfully but 
it definitely kind of set the tone for whether or not we should do this going forward. And it's still a contentious issue today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, so that's one of the, the questions too, that might be, um, uh, not quite as directly relevant for the language channel, but a, a philosophical question about whether whether we we ought to be trying to make contact with with these sorts of um, extraterrestrial beings if they exist. Uh, how how we might know that? But let's let's get back to the question about language. Um, so in the book, you make the distinction between language and communication, and and one of the things you try and communicate or argue, I should say, in the book is that this this distinction between language and communication is important for understanding some of the challenges in getting in touch with and and communicating with extraterrestrials. So uh, maybe tell us why you don't use the words language and communication interchangeably and how you understand this in relationship to the, this project of extraterrestrial communication. Sure. So in the book, I I mostly take a Chomskyan um, approach and his ideas about language guide a lot of my, my own thinking about how we might want to communicate with, uh, on an interstellar um, basis. But the the distinction between language and communication is that language can be used for communication, but that's not its sole or even its primary function, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people uh, that kind of gives them pause because in our day-to-day life, um, you know, like right now we're using language to communicate with each other Mm -hmm. over uh, uh, this, this webcasting app. And, you know, we use language to communicate with each other uh, when we text our, you know, friends and family but we also, uh, you know, and, and th- those are communicative functions, but we're primarily using language, or at least Chomsky thinks we are, to order our thoughts. And so that is what distinguishes language from communication as such. Communication actually represents in this uh, model a far greater uh, 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 field of representation. So for instance, you could have like body language or like the, mm-hmm. the way you dress could be considered um, communicative. And so Mm -hmm. just by like, if I slouch, I'm communicating something, but I wouldn't want go so far as to call my body language, a language in the same sense that English or Spanish or Chinese Mm -hmm. is a language. Um, Mm -hmm. So that that's the distinction. It's, it's a little bit technical, but like the, the reason why it's important for um, uh, discussing whether or not we could communicate with an interstellar uh, or with an extraterrestrial is, um, you know, as far as we can tell, animals are able to communicate and some animals may even have very sophisticated um, uh, mechanisms for communicating both, you know, whether it's something like pheromones that are used by insects or, you know, Mm -hmm. dolphin clicks and whistles, which play a very big role in the book. Um, But those communication systems, as far as we can tell, are, are, are fundamentally distinct from what human language is. What we have is something fundamentally different. And so the question is, is I guess one, how complex can non-human languages get with before crossing that threshold? Like what is that barrier that divides animal languages and human languages? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that barrier is important because if you can say develop mathematics and technology without developing what we consider language, mm-hmm. and if an extraterrestrial were to go that route where they don't have the same uh, uh, fundamental ability to uh, wield symbols like we do to have language as we understand it, mm-hmm. then then the barriers to communication are so high that, as to be impossible. And so mm. th- this question of where are the boundaries of language and what are those like what constitute those boundaries are fundamental to this question of whether or not we can meaningfully communicate with an ET. I personally think that um, there are a lot of uh, uh, reasons to believe that uh, not only will ET have language like ours, but they will actually have. Uh, they will actually uh, uh, have cognition very similar to ours. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll mm-hmm. think like us. And these mm-hmm. two issues, depending on what you think language is, are 
intimately uh, intertwined. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, some, some of our listeners may have seen the movie Arrival, which isn't recent anymore, uh, but relatively recent movie that deals with this kind of question where these, these humans make contact with an, an alien species. It's one of the few few films where linguists play a, a starring role. Uh, and they're, they're radically different than human beings biologically, and that is part of the, the challenge and the ability to communicate. And depending on your, your views about linguistics, you might think the movie takes some, some interesting liberties. But um, back to your, your question, um, you're sort of grappling with this idea here in the book, um, and you've just mentioned Chomsky. You connect this to, to Chomsky's, Chomsky's idea of a universal grammar. So um, maybe you can unpack this a little bit more. What is the relationship between uh, biology and the possibility of having a language and the kind of language that uh, one might have such that it would impact our potential to communicate with aliens? Sure. Aliens, rather. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like your uh, example of arrival because I, I think Amy Adams actually has a, a a really, she she has an easier task than most uh, <laughs> real life interstellar uh, communicators have because she actually gets to interface in a physical way with aliens, um, which yeah. is <laughs> you, it, things get a lot easier as soon as symbols come into the mix. Um, mm-hmm. but, and we can kind of dive into that later too, yeah. if you want, but, um, to, to answer your, your, your question about what is biologically determined about language with this Chom- Chomsky had this idea of this universal language and it's, and, and he came up with it by asking kind of a deceptively simple question or, or rather an observation, which was, you know, children are able to wield language at a very early age and having, you know, relatively little exposure. They, they, they can rapidly pick up language and not just a particular language. They can pick up any language. And this mm-hmm. seems to be like if you take out people who um, don't have serious mental illness or some, uh, you know, serious disorder, um, th- this is universal across our species, just this mm-hmm. amazing faculty that we have. And so the question that linguists have grappled with for the last hundred years or so is where does that come about? And until Chomsky uh, came around, the dominant paradigm was, well, you have a child that's born as essentially a blank slate and they're exposed to language to their parents and their peers. And eventually they collect enough examples that they start putting the language together and then they can start forming sentences and then they're off to the races and their language Mm -hmm. improves over time. Um, Well, that, that's nice, I guess, in in principle, but it doesn't really jive with our, our kind of how children go about learning languages because they're able to form completely novel utterances that they've never heard mm-hmm. um, at a very young age. And so the question was, how are they able to do this? How are they able to learn any language? And so Chomsky's idea was, well, there's something innate in our brain. And so this uh, could be called, I guess, like a language organ. And I mm-hmm. think that, that that term, I think, is a bit misleading because it makes you think that there's like some like little bean in your head that <laughs> gives you language. But it's not that literal, but it is to a sense that like there is something emergent about the way our brains are ordered that allows us to have language. And what's interesting about that is, you know, our closest, uh, you know, genetic relatives that are non-human primates, um, you know, Chomsky makes the argument that they do not even have the prerequisites for language. Like there was some mm-hmm. evolutionary gap between non-human primates and uh, humans one has language, one does not even have like the fundamental building blocks. So this isn't like a stepwise mm-hmm. evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. There's something physically different that has given us this uh, ability. And what that is, is unclear. Um, 
But, you know, to it, I, I think it's probably the most elegant explanation I've heard is that the reason that we're able to do this and that we all have this ability um, is, is that there is something innate in our brains. And so mm-hmm. um, what's interesting about that and why I actually think, um, and this might be jumping the gun a bit, but I think that's actually a very strong argument that we should be sending natural language based mm-hmm. messages into space as opposed to mathematically based languages because mm-hmm. um, ma- ma- mathematics is not really an innate ability to some extent. Very mm-hmm. basic mathematics is, but not in the same way that language is. And I don't know if we want to uh, <laughs> open that up yet, but it, it's th- this question of is language innate is very deeply tied to this question of um, where does mathematics come from? Yeah, let's let's pause on that for just a second and, and stick with the the biological sure. for a moment. I mean, because I think you know it's it's a bit of a flight of fancy, but you you think about examples of extraterrestrials that have uh, again going back to science fiction have very different uh, biologies than we do, and you know easy to come up with examples. And you might think, well, then that means that there's going to be some sort of fundamental divide such that we're not going to be able to communicate with them because they have such a different biology. Does the idea that Chomsky has of a universal grammar um, sort of come down one side or the other that in terms of constraining the kinds of biologies that um, we could engage with, or is it just the fact of having a biology, sort of a biological basis? Does that mean there's a possibility that these extraterrestrials would be able to communicate? Uh, Maybe you could fill out just a little bit more here. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I definitely don't have the answers to this. And if I did, I think I would uh, be, you know, accepting a Nobel prize soon. But, <laughs> <Different> so, <book>. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways t- to answer this question. So I guess the first way is if language is biologically based and if our cognition is biologically based and these two things, mm-hmm. like the way that we think is determined by language, So this is this Chomsky's idea of I language and that language is primarily used for ordering our thoughts. And so if the way we think is fundamentally tied to our ability to wield language, then the question is, where does the language come from? So we say Mm -hmm. language comes from some biological, biologically determined mechanism. So the question is, can that biologically determined mechanism be implemented in ways that don't necessarily look like this, you know, five pound lump of gray flesh in our skulls? Can we replicate this? same mode of cognition, but not necessarily in the same form. Like, would it be possible to have something that looks like an octopus, but thinks like a human? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think depending on, uh, I guess, well, depending on a lot of things, but like, um, and, and this again, probably has more to do with math, but let's just say Mm -hmm. we could have an octopus that, uh, uh, has implemented the same modes of cognition, but like on a fu- different substrate. And I like, I, <laughs> I'm explaining this poorly, but um, mm, a, a good metaphor is probably like artificial intelligence. And there's a reason why mm-hmm. a lot of AI researchers got involved with this is because this idea of intelligence and the way that we think, uh, you know, AI is predicated on this idea that it is in intelligence is independent of the thing that is doing the thinking. Right. And so it should be possible to artificially recreate it outside of a you know, flesh and blood brain. Mm -hmm. And so if that's possible, then the question is, what are the odds that the intelligence as we understand it, as we recognize in humans, one, is that the only form of intelligence? Mm -hmm. Is this the only way that evolution can become, I guess, you know, self-aware and and conscious? Or are we just like one of many different options? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I think there's actually a very strong reason to think that uh, 
uh, intelligence would tend to converge toward the type of intelligence that we have as humans. Mm-hmm. And um, th- this is based on an idea that was uh, originally floated in the context of communicating with extraterrestrials by Marvin Minsky, who was mm-hmm. uh, the progenitor of, I guess, modern artificial intelligence. And his thinking was that the reason why an extraterrestrial could be presumed to think like us is because they face the same fundamental constraints on uh, space, resources, and time. The odds of an extraterrestrial living forever are uh, basically zero. We don't know of mm-hmm. any life that can exist for indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, in terms of resources, um, while an ET may be better or worse at, uh, uh, I guess, economy using their resources wisely they they do have fundamental limits on how much is available for them to use and then uh, of course you know you can't have an infinitely large thing as well so you have these basic uh kind of constraints that shape life anywhere and so you know you can kind of tweak the dials on those things you know you might have a planet that has say more gravity so things tend to be shorter and kind of compact and they don't you know they're not skinny human looking things they're Mm -hmm. closer to the ground or something um, so you have these, uh, I guess, slight variations, probably, I guess, in speciation, mm-hmm. but every species everywhere, as far as we know, the laws of physics are the same throughout the universe. All of these species are going to face these same fundamental constraints. And so if, if the intelligence that we have involved, have evolved is a, um, an advantageous, uh, uh, trait in the face of these fundamental constraints throughout the universe, then that suggests that life elsewhere might evolve to these same sorts of um, uh, solutions to these right. constraints. And so um, at the most broad level, that's using symbols. Uh, right. it, it's much, much, uh, uh, I guess, much more efficient to use symbols to communicate about an idea than to like, if every time I wanted to talk about an apple, I had to like go bring you over to the apple tree and point at it. <laughs> right. That's a very inconvenient right. way. So, right. So even just like the fact that we use symbols is a very, very efficient way of communicating information and like information exchange is very advantageous. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all these reasons to think that if life is faced with the same fundamental constraints everywhere, they might evolve to uh, arrive at the same solutions. And so the question is, is there other ways of intelligence emerging that uh, addresses these same constraints, but it's just so fundamentally alien to us that we couldn't overcome that barrier. Of course, yeah. we'll never know until we make contact, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, it seems more likely to me that um, we should operate on the assumption that aliens elsewhere mm-hmm. could think like us. I don't think that's very yeah. far-fetched. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, let's, let's, um, let's go with that and um, make the connection to mathematics that you were, you were suggesting. Because as you're speaking, one thought might come to mind is, well, not just the laws of physics are the same everywhere. But so are the laws of mathematics. So if we have an extraterrestrial, especially, you know, very advanced extraterrestrial, uh, you might just think, look, let's use some universal language grounded in the structure of reality. That seems like mathematics. Why don't we just use mathematics as a way to communicate with extraterrestrials? What's what's the challenge there? Sure. And so, I mean, I think I think what's interesting about mathematics is every scientific message that we've ever sent into space is fundamentally based around this idea that our mathematics is the same. 
And that to me is a remarkably uh, uh, big assumption because, mm-hmm. and it's a natural one. And I think if you mm-hmm. stop the random person on the street and ask, you know, what is math? They would probably say that there is like some mathematical structure to the universe and that it exists outside of humans. Right. And, but that's just one way of thinking about what mathematics is. And I would say that kind of the two big, uh, uh, I guess, competing theories here is there's one, which is where math is a human created, uh, uh, you know, language essentially that it, we use to describe the world around us. Mm-hmm. The other is math. Um, as I think most people tend to think of it, it where, where mathematical properties really exist in the universe and we discover them. It's almost like reading a book. That's how Galileo mm-hmm. described it as the universe is written in this book of, in this language of mathematics and we're learning to read it. Well, as far as interstellar communication is concerned, we should hope that Galileo is correct and that we are all reading the same book because if mathematics turns out to be a product of the human mind, there's actually no real reason that we should assume that our mathematics will be the same as an extraterrestrial's. Mm-hmm. And that seems insane, but there's, there's actually a very fascinating branch of math uh, that looks at it as this embodied cognition that math, the way we understand math is a product of the way that uh, we, we exist as embodied beings. So just like the fact that we have 10 fingers could mm-hmm. lead, uh, as a very simplistic example, could lead to our, our um, uh, preference for base 10 systems. And of course, base mm-hmm. 10 is not the only system and it hasn't been throughout history. Um, various cultures have used uh, various bases. And, but you know, even something as simple as, uh, or as fundamental, I should say, as like set mm-hmm. theory, yeah, and our ability to group things into classes, um, we do this very naturally as humans. But there's, n- but that that only works up to a, a point. And like original set theory made a lot of intuitive sense. You could think about it metaphorically as like classes as containers that you could like group mm-hmm. objects in into different sets. Um, mm-hmm. But but as soon as we started. Uh, creating axiomatic set theory where you have universal classes, you have empty classes, all of a sudden that went way beyond um, this uh, very intuitive understanding of mathematics that we had developed. Like it felt more like an an invention Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a discovery um, of something that was out there in the universe. Like there's no reason to think that we all exist as some part of some universal class, even though that Mm -hmm. is one way that we could describe the universe. And so the mm-hmm. question then is, to what extent is mathematics, um, uh, you know, biologically based or based on the fact that we are embodied cognition. So mm-hmm. to get to get back to this uh, uh, octopus that we're talking with yeah. on another on another planet, <laughs> the question is like, you know, would they come up with um, uh, arithmetic in the same sense as we are if they don't have this uh, uh, same embodiment? And to what degree does um, uh the way we exist as uh, physical corporeal beings affect our ability to use mathematics. And, you know, if you ask mm-hmm. psychologists, a lot of them will say it, it affects our ability to do math greatly. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about um, interstellar communication in the sense is that um, most messages that we've sent out that are based around these mathematically derived languages assume that math is going to be the same for them. So it's not so much we're teaching an alien calculus we're mm-hmm. just teaching them our symbols for calculus mm-hmm. assuming mm-hmm. that like they will recognize the logical structure of a formula when we send it to them because they mm-hmm. also understand this and there is some logic to that mm-hmm. you know most of the the things that we've sent out into the universe are uh uh radio we haven't done any um you know laser based messages mm-hmm. at this point and so you know if you assume that the person on the other end is going to be using radio technology which i think is a, a bit of a stretch mm-hmm. um uh 
you know, you, you, they, they must have had a way to build that telescope. They must understand math at some level. And so mm-hmm. the question is, is there only one mathematics? And so far the assumption has been yes. And, you know, we better hope that it is mm-hmm. if, if we're going to use mathematically based messages. Right. But I, I think it, it's something that we should probably examine a bit more critically going forward if we're going to really be serious about this. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's again, one of the other in your book, you go into this in a bit more detail and a bit more technically about some of the, um, the philosophy of mathematics, people who are working on these, on these questions about whether or not mathematics is, is constructed or, or, or natural. Uh, but even, even beyond this question of, um, whether, whether mathematics is, plausible is a, is a plausible universal language. There's sort of a step before this, right? That um, we want the extraterrestrial to recognize that what we're doing is sending them something that is, that is, a, that is communication, right? Uh, so we're sending these radio signals out into the universe. We're sending other things out there, sorts of, sorts of signals that, well, it could be just seen as, as natural phenomenon. So we want the ET to recognize some sort of intention and trying to, to do some interpretation or decoding or things like that. And you talk about this in the book as well, that this is a, this is in fact a problem for this, um, this process of trying to get an extraterrestrial to recognize that we are communicating. Can, can you say a little bit about that? Why is this a difficulty? Yeah. And you know, you, um, I think everyone thinks of contact, um, as, as like in the movie contact where Jodie Foster is sitting by a telescope and like all of a sudden a video message comes from space <laughs> and it's very clear what it is. And it's not going to be like that at all. In fact, it's unclear, you know, we may have already made contact and heard from aliens and just not recognize it. This is a, a very fundamental problem with this uh, uh, enterprise is how do you even recognize a message amongst all the noise? The universe is a very noisy place, radio noise. Um, and so there, there's two ways to go about this. One is um, in in the way that the message is broadcast itself. So for instance, you want to, like most natural occurring phenomena, say like a pulsar that's spitting out, it's almost like a, a lighthouse. It's just spitting mm-hmm. out this blast of energy on a, a regular basis. And so you can measure it. They're very accurate. They're, they're kind of the clocks of the universe. You can set your watch to them. Um, and they just smear radio waves across the spectrum. So you're going to have this like very broadband signal. And so one way to distinguish a message as artificial is to make it very narrow. So SETI on Earth, we're looking in like very thin bands of the, the radio spectrum for, for messages. And the, the reason you want to do that is also because it conserves power. There's lots of technical reasons. So mm-hmm. the way you encode the message is one way of uh, differentiating it as a artificial signal. And uh, you can also do that with the the contents of the message as well. And I think this is a this also kind of ties into the the difference between animal and uh, human communication. Is that mm-hmm. if you look at um, human language, for instance, um, the lexical elements of language have a very uh, uh, deep order to them, and you can measure this. Um, in terms of the amount of information a message carries. And so what you would want to do, for instance, is send a book or like a booked length text into space. And then mm-hmm. if you were to analyze that radio signal that you would find that there is a deep structure that could be measured and doesn't look uh, like it's regular enough to show that it carries information, mm-hmm. but it's not so uh, random as to look natural and it's not so ordered 
um, which can also look natural um, mm -hmm. because if you just have like a pulsar sending out a, a beam every you know second, say, mm -hmm. that's going to look very natural. And then if you just have one that's just like these fast radio bursts, for instance, where you just get this like brief blip of kind of nonsense, you're not going to think there's any uh, information content there as all. Well. So it's kind of like this mm -hmm. Goldilocks situation where you want to have just enough information and not too much. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, as you had mentioned, it, it, it's harder than it sounds. And the, our, the first time we discovered a pulsar, you know, decades ago, we, we actually mistook it for a uh, potential interstellar uh, communication. We, we, mm -hmm. we thought there might be information uh, encoded in it. Uh, it turned out not to be the case, but then it did kind of raise the question. It's like, okay, well, if we almost mistook this very natural phenomenon that we now know is everywhere for a message, how are we going to differentiate our messages? And yeah. so, I mean, that's an ongoing... Um, problem but i think it i think as i said earlier it, it does make a strong case for sending large uh, uh language corpora uh, these large uh collections of text mm -hmm. as the basis of our messages rather than like these most messages so far have you know lasted for a few minutes they don't have that mm -hmm. much information and if they do it's not very well ordered or structured or any way so um i think we have to get a bit more savvy in terms of the uh the t the, the text that we're sending right but um, yeah, you, you can definitely determine something is artificial just based on the, um, I guess, recurring elements within that text. Yeah. And, and you, you talk a, a little bit about some of the, I don't know that we need to get into it uh, too deeply here. People can, can, can read the book about some of the mathematical aspects here of determining um, sort of like distribution of lexical units and things like that in, in, in a, in a, in a bit of language, but um one of the things that it seems like in the book is happening is when you're thinking about this at the extraterrestrial context, what, a, how is it that we're going to get an ET to recognize that what's going on is language? Well, we have to turn back and look at human language for, for an example and look at the, the features of human language and human language is right across different natural languages. Um, but then one of the things that people do is they look over at uh, vocalizations from dolphins or birds or other sorts of, of, of animals and do some comparison. How, how do those stack up compared to human languages? And so um, this kind of brings us back to the point that you've been making um, earlier about the interrelationship between this project and other projects that people are involved in. Like, for instance, well, can we communicate with, uh, with animals, with dolphins? Can they communicate with us? Do they have something we would call a language? So one of the, I think, fun parts of the book, and there's a lot in the book that's fun, but one of the, I think, really um, uh, parts that I enjoyed, let's just put it that way, is the discussion of these human attempts to communicate with dolphins um, and how that's connected to attempts to communicate with extraterrestrials. And I think this is connected to the point you're, you're making here about complexity. So uh, maybe can you tell us a little bit about this uh, interrelationship between speaking with dolphins and speaking with ETs? Do, do dolphins have a language? Are we are we speaking with dolphins yet? Um, if we're not able to, does that mean, well, that we're not going to be able to communicate with ETs? Sure. I mean, uh, d dolphins communicating with dolphins goes back to the very earliest days of the scientific uh, uh, attempts to communicate with extraterrestrials. There was a man named John Lilly who was uh, based down in the Bahamas doing very controversial experiments with dolphins, which I won't give away, uh, go read yeah. the book. They're crazier than you think. Yeah. Um, but he was friends with Carl Sagan and he got invited to one of the original meetings, um, uh, for SETI 
kind of after Frank Drake did his original experiment in 1960 and they didn't hear anything, obviously. And the, they gathered to kind of figure out, you know, is there, is it worth our time to continue trying to do this? Is this scientific? Can we make it scientific? John Lilly was of the opinion that dolphins had a language and that we could mm-hmm. learn to uh, understand them and that they could learn to understand us. And he spent most of his career trying to figure out how to do that. Um, it sounds crazy to think that dolphins might have a language, but there's a lot of reasons why um, people think that. And to some degree still uh, think that not, in the same way that John Lilly did. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess for one thing, you have uh, encephalization. So dolphins have very large brains. So they look like, um, uh, you know, they have the capacity for this. But then also, if you uh, break down their uh, vocalizations into kind of d- these discrete units and try to identify them, and then you you plot them out as information context, and I won't, mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess, bore the listeners too much with this. But if you look at a human language, and this is remarkable because it's found in pretty much every human language, and you plot out the letters, the phonemes, or the the word frequency on a logarithmic graph, you'll get a a, a slope that has a slope of negative one. Yep. And all languages seem to have this distribution of lexical units within them. And so you, you would think, okay, so if that's the case, then one way to determine whether a species or an alien has a, a, a language in the same way that we do is by looking at complexity and measuring it the same way. And if it has a slope close to negative one, you would think, well, that might very well be a language. Yeah. What's interesting about dolphin vocalizations is they their slope is around uh, negative, I think, 0.9 or 0.95. So very, mm-hmm. very close. And mm-hmm. so that should set off alarm bells and saying, well, if that's the case, then maybe dolphins do have language and we can figure mm-hmm. out how to communicate with them. Well, the problem is as soon as you start looking at words in groups, say uh, the relationship between one word and the next word or the word two words from it and the word three words from it, mm-hmm. human, human languages actually still have a very uh, steady complexity that can be measured. Um, as, as, as you look at the relationship between words on, I guess, a, a bigger picture view and go, go out to multiple orders from the original word, mm-hmm. dolphins do not. So as soon as you start looking at vocalizations, that drops off and kind of falls into nonsense almost immediately, like two or three mm-hmm. orders out, it just becomes scrambled. So that mm-hmm. suggests that their syntax is nothing like human languages and mm-hmm. really does not have the same communicative uh, complexity. Now, mm-hmm. that seems like it should be case closed. Dolphins don't have language, but um, there's a woman named Denise Herzing, um, and she is just my favorite researcher working in this field. But uh, uh, every season, she goes out to the Caribbean and uh, gets in the water with dolphins, and she's developed this uh, submersible computer that she's trying mm-hmm. to establish two-way communication with dolphins, and seems to be having some success. And so, the, the you know, I think the interesting thing here is that th- th- this raises the question again: Is our language unique? Is this the only way to have complex communication? Because you know, if you look at Denise Herzing's research, these dolphins really do seem to be able to create novel utterances. Do seem to be able to have a basic syntax. It's not the same kind of uh, infinitely hierarchical uh, syntax that you find in human language, and that a lot of people think might be a defining feature of human language. But it mm-hmm. never, nevertheless, does seem to have hallmarks of complex communication mm-hmm. and a lot of the other uh, uh, faculties that you would expect in languages as well. Um, it, it, I, I think I recently saw research come out. I can't remember where it might've been in science, but they, they, they found this in bird vocalizations as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think when I was originally writing this book, my, my thinking on animal communication was, you know, this is kind of an outdated model for interstellar communication. We're dealing mm-hmm. with something fundamentally different. I still mostly think that we can't think of animals on earth as like prototype aliens that we can mm-hmm. practice on. I think mm-hmm. animal communication can be complex, but it's something fundamentally different. But I think if anything, this re- ongoing research, especially with dolphins, but also with uh, mm-hmm. 
chimpanzees, mm-hmm. birds. It, it shows that what we understand about language is very incomplete or, you know, mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. perhaps communication, you know, we, we're so used to thinking human centrically and this book is kind of human centric in the sense that mm-hmm. I think aliens think like us, but man, what's happening to animal communication studies Mm -hmm. right now is fascinating. And the more we learn, the more it seems like animals do have very complex communication systems, even if they aren't language as such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I won't uh, spoil any of the book for, for listeners who want to want to go pick it up. I mean, um, I, I, yeah, I think it's a, a really, really fascinating, fascinating part of the book. And uh, I can't remember if you if you did make a Star Trek four reference or not in the book, but I just kept thinking there's got to be a place for that. The uh, ET connecting to the to the whales and other oh yeah other animal life on Earth. Um, okay, so we we don't have too much time left, but what, I want to talk about a couple of other other things in the book. So um, one of the things that uh, we've we've been talking about here, we've been talking about. Um, what's involved in communicating about mathematics, um, natural language, but we haven't really uh, talked about, I guess, in much detail about how, what it looks like to construct a language. Um, And you go through this in the book, you go through a number of um, these efforts at constructing a language in in a bit of detail. Um, Can you kind of take us through just a little bit with one of these efforts, explain it in what's involved in actually constructing a language that um, ET might understand. Sure. So I will, I guess I'll describe the first language that was ever intentionally constructed with the intention of sending it into space, which is called mm-hmm. uh, the lingua cosmica. And this was uh, to kind of go back to what we, who we were talking about in the beginning, this man named Hans Freudenthal created this language. Um, and it has several derivatives. In fact, the, the cover of the book is an extraterrestrial language that was broadcast into space about uh, 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. That was, derived from his language. But the, the, the basic idea that uh, Freudenthal came up with and that has since been, um, uh, I, I guess, kind of repeated in every attempt since is this idea that you start with a basic mathematical concept, usually algebra, um, and then you work from that and you slowly build up from basic math to basic science. And then you can eventually, um, in principle, begin to talking about more complex aspects of human society. Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, he realized and you know, I, I, we all intuitively feel like how bad would it suck to be on earth and we receive our first interstellar message and it's a calculus textbook. Like the aliens, <laughs> just, like that would be so boring. It's not what we want to know. We want to talk about, we want to know about what life is on earth. What movies are mm-hmm. they watching? What do they do? Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes time to get there. So you have to create this the, really interstellar communication is about finding a common basis of understanding. Mm-hmm. And so every language today, it has taken that common basis to be math and, um, if we assume that aliens are, you know, reading from the same book and that they have a similar understanding of mathematics, then the idea is we're not teaching them math. We're teaching them our symbols for math. And so Mm -hmm. Freudenthal's approach was, okay, so we start with numbers and we're not teaching them numbers. We're teaching them numerals. So Mm -hmm. here's what one looks like to us. And, and because he was operating in a, uh, uh, radio based language, you would send out one pulse and then you would Mm -hmm. send out two pulses and then you would send out three pulses. And so now you have these little blips of radioactivity that represent individual numerals. And from that, you could then introduce uh, new, uh, I guess, like radio pulses um, mm-hmm. that you could uh, differentiate based on time or based on frequency shifts, or there, there's lots of different ways to actually encode this information. He kind mm-hmm. of was agnostic on that front, but then you would encode 
the the symbols to actually do math. So you'd say like, okay, once you have the the base 10 numerals, now we're going to show here's how we say addition. Here's how we say division. And then once you have that, you can start talking about more complex mathematics. And then once you have that, you can, um, and this is kind of where it gets dicey is say jumping to things like physics or chemistry and say, Mm -hmm. okay, we're going to describe a physical formula. Like here is the, uh, uh, formula, uh, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And with the, you know, we can create, um, I guess, radio glyphs that communicate mm-hmm. these ideas. I think Freudenthal failed miserably at this. And so do a lot mm-hmm. of people, but it, he, he, his thinking has definitely kind of set the tone for everything that's come after him in terms of using, starting with fundamental math and then building up to more complex languages. And mm-hmm. I, I, um, you know, I know we're getting short on time here, but I will mm-hmm. just say that the thinking has kind of evolved more recently um, as artificial intelligence has gotten more sophisticated mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I won't go into the whole history of this, but there's really good reason to think that any species we make contact with out in space is going to be far more advanced than us. We're mm-hmm. very, we're very, very young in terms of the universe, um, both as a species and as a planetary system. So odds are whoever we talk to is a lot older than us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting because if they have had a similar technological trajectory from it, there's a very good chance that we might be talking to a post-biological being or an AI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking to an AI, we probably don't need to go through all this trouble of building up from like numerals to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking about love in the language of like algebra. We can mm-hmm. probably just like get right, cut right to the chase and send like a massive corpus of you know mm-hmm. human natural languages with like a relatively small key for understanding that that's written in mm-hmm. say like uh, a symbolic logic some really formal language and that mm-hmm. is actually the basis of a new generation of uh, the lingua cosmica that was developed by a computer programmer named alexander allengren whose idea was to create a meta language that you graphed on top of giant corpuses of mm-hmm. natural language texts so then you could send et like cultural information and then kind of graphed this uh more formal language on top of it so that they could have a basis for understanding that, that that logical Mm -hmm. basis and, you know, machines on earth. That's how, and I guess fundamentally every language that we try to send in space represents the thinking of the time and our technological capacity. Mm -hmm. And right now, the way we teach machines um, how to interpret human languages is by just feeding them massive corpuses of uh, human language texts that are marked up with, um, uh, you know, like grammatical markings and, and so on. Um, and so the thinking is, well, we could just do that with space too. You know, the, the, these ETs aren't just going to be like listening with an earphone and then write <laughs> stuff down. They're probably going to be computers. So right. treat them like it and treat right. it like you're trying to teach a compu- an algorithm. Yeah. So that, I mean, uh, kind of brings us a little bit full circle back to uh, some of the, I guess, ethical questions that arise, you know, again, and I mean, I, I, this is not to, um, to, to make light of the topic, but I think I, I, I tend to reach for science fiction films as examples because I think, you know, these are the things that are, you know, grappling with some of this stuff. You might think, well, why, why would we want to, um, you know, to try and uh, speak with a, an artificial intelligence that's out there in, in the, the universe? Isn't that uh, potentially dangerous? Uh, so we talked about this at the beginning of the, the interview, um, that this was kind of maybe not for the AI point of view, but this is one of the worries about the uh, Arecibo message was a, is about who's out there listening. If, if these are, you know, advanced artificial intelligences, um, should we be sending cultural information about the, the earth to them? And, and, and whose information are, are we, we sending? Are we sending, you know, the United States? Are we sending 
uh, et cetera. So I know this is a little bit beyond the scope of the book. You talk about it to, to an extent, but can you take us through a little bit some of the political and ethical issues involved here? Um, thinking about who these messengers are, are speaking for, you know, and, and do we really want to be heard? Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, this is, could be a whole book in itself. And I, you know, I, I don't think science fiction makes light of this at all. And I think science fiction is actually a great way to think about these concepts. And this has been a recurring theme in science fiction is this idea of uh, uh, contact between technologies with uh, uh, in, in equal, at unequal phases in their development. And so, you know, I really like Sishin Lu, for example, and like the three body mm-hmm. problem is a great example, uh, a, a recent sci-fi example of this. And, you know, as we know on Earth, if, when you have uh, uh, a technologically advanced civilization that makes contact with a less technologically advanced civilization, and um, it usually doesn't work out so well for the less technologically advanced civilization, that could be a quirk of you just like we're barbaric uh, monkeys that developed gunpowder. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it could be maybe a more fundamental aspect of just, you know, being a conscious being. And so if mm-hmm. we, tr- if we think about aliens in the context of, you know, human first contact between very different societies, um, it's understandable why people might be wary of broadcasting our location. And there, there's a kind of a, uh, a theory out there, this like dark forest theory, or like, it, you know, we've been listening to space for decades and haven't heard anything. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the reason we haven't is that everyone else knows about something out there that we don't and that mm. they're shutting up to survive. And that by broadcasting yeah. our location, we're kind of shouting in a jungle. It's a, it's a very visceral term. I think that I don't agree with this view, but I think it really drives the point home is that you don't want to broadcast because you don't know who's on the other end. And um, if these are really more advanced civilizations, that could be very, very bad. And, you know, I like to think, uh, in a different term, which is uh, there's this idea called the great filter. Mm-hmm. And for people who aren't familiar with that idea, it's that as uh, a civilization gets more technologically advanced, they, they, they have to cross these very important thresholds that where they could end up destroying themselves. And so one of those is, for instance, uh, we think about like nuclear power and like we, we harness this ability to all have almost unlimited energy. Like nuclear power is so great from an energy density standpoint, but it also mm-hmm. is so destructive when we use it for to make weapons. And so mm-hmm. we have to kind of get through this, this filter of, you know, can we harness these uh, massively powerful technologies without destroying ourselves? And so we're seeing that with climate change. We're seeing that with nuclear power. We're seeing that with artificial intelligence. And so if, if we can get through that to the other side, then that suggests that we have enough, uh, I guess, resiliency and, ability to cooperate as a species and kind of like have our best interests in mind to get through these massive challenges together. And if we don't, we wipe ourselves out and we can't contact anyone anyway. And so mm-hmm. the, the thinking there is that if we do make contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence, they've, they've gotten past these worst impulses that we see in our species and have figured out how to make it work and are not this, you know, bloodthirsty, uh, uh, octopus coming to suck out our brains, but they're, 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 they're benevolent and they want to help mm-hmm. us because they figured out how to do that on their own, uh, in, in their own context. And so, you know, I, I personally, that's the kind of the optimist in me takes that view, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even, even if you take the view that this isn't dangerous, there are so many ethical questions about broadcasting. And I think the most important one that I just want to hit on is that, Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about interstellar communication, we're not talking about one person talking to another, or even one country talking to another, we're talking about in two entire, planets two entire species making contact and so who gets to decide what goes in that message and what gets said when we when we create a message are we going to tell them 
about all the people on earth that are starving, about all the people that are are, are, are dying of, of, of war and murder and all this bad stuff? Are we only going to mm-hmm. focus on the good? Because of course, there's a lot of great things about human life. But like, if you really gave aliens the whole picture, are they going to want to write back? And so <laughs> yeah. that's one question. And then also, you know, who gets to decide? So far, the messages that have been sent out have been designed by committee. Maybe a, a dozen people might have input on these things or mm-hmm. to the extent that they're mass produced, uh, it's usually kind of gimmicky, like send a tweet or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's a very complex question. And, um, you know, I, I do address it, I guess, in the book more in length, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. I'm not sure if there is a good answer. Um, yeah. I will say that I think music is a very beautiful way that we might be able to address this and that the SETI Institute has a ongoing project that I would encourage everyone listening to contribute to called the Earthling song where they're going to take mm-hmm. anyone can submit a voice message and they're going to use it to create a composition of uh, hopefully hundreds of thousands of voices that will mm-hmm. uh, be broadcast. Um, so, I, I, you know, those are the kinds of projects that I like to see going forward is yep. how we can get more inclusive because it's, it is a big issue. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, we're we're almost out of time. One one last question. Uh, what are what are you working on now? Do you have a, another uh, book in the works on extraterrestrial languages, or are you shifting to to something different? Yeah, not on extraterrestrial languages. I do have one in the works. Um, I can't say much about it at this point, but um, uh, it's it's actually on a completely different topic. But I will say, you know, if people are interested in uh, you know high technology, uh, stay stay tuned because hopefully I'll have something. Uh, good to announce in a few weeks. Okay. Very, very mysterious. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you for, uh, for your time and folks uh, that are, that are listening. They'll, as always, we'll have a link up to, to the book on the, the website and um, hope folks will pick it up. It's, uh, it's really engaging and interesting. Uh, lots of, lots of philosophy and cool stuff about dolphins in there too. So <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for your time, Daniel. Yeah. Thank you so much, Malcolm.